When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rivenis. Well, I was looking through the episodes I've released in the last year, and it appears that the time period I've covered is from the late 18th century, starting with the terrible Hart brothers, up to the very end of the 1940s. So this episode is a bit of a jump forward, but still considered historic, I suppose, especially to my millennial audience. We're going all the way up to the late 60s, Las Vegas, and into the very early 1970s. My guest today is Sean Assail, one of the original staff members at ESPN Magazine and a regular contributor to ESPN's Outside the Lines, as well as a former police reporter. He's here to talk with me about his book, The Murder of Sonny Liston, Las Vegas, Heroin, and Heavyweights. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be talking to you. Yeah, this is great. Well, let's start with Sonny Liston. For those of my listeners who are not boxing fans, who was he and what was his significance in the world of boxing? Um, well, and, and really the world of, of American race and culture as well. Um, I mean, Sonny, Sonny Liston was the heavyweight champion of the world from uh, 1962 to 1964 uh, at a time when, you know, heavyweights were giants that really roamed the earth. And they, uh, they were more than sports figures. They were, they were political and cultural figures, too. And Joe Lewis um, was a, a, uh, a war hero um, and revered when um, he was champion, um, um, when, when um, Max Schmeling fought uh, Lewis, they were proxies for their countries. So, you know, these were, these were, this was a time when being a heavyweight champion carried with it, um, a, a, you know, enormous expectations out of the ring. Um, a, you know, Floyd Patterson, who Sonny took the, the uh, title from, was a, a 
pivotal force in the emerging civil rights movement because black America saw him as their uh, emissary. Um, Ali, Muhammad Ali, who, who Sonny would lose his title to, became the voice of his generation as well. These were all big, big, big names, big figures. Um, Sonny was both um, ill-educated and ill-spoken and unlike any of them. So when he beat um, Floyd, Patterson, um, Floyd Patterson for the title in 1962, it's, it, it was really horrific um, for a lot of people. Sonny had a hate-hate relationship with America. White America hated him because they saw him as a, a tool of the mob, which in large part then was true. And black America hated him because he had beat Floyd Patterson, and you know they didn't want to be stuck with him as as, as their emissary. Um, so Sonny had a really rough go of it. But as a, as a as a figure, um, he was considered the a, a just a different kind of black champion, a different a different kind of black American. And um, you know, in some respects, he created an entire culture of, of gangsterism that would um, take root thirty years later. But th- but that was Sonny Liston uh, in the day. Could you talk a little bit about his childhood? He, he came from a poor family, right? Yeah the the one of the signature um, parts of Sonny's biography is that uh, he was born with so poor and so, in such a rural. Um, spot in Forest City, Arkansas. He was the 24th of 25 children by his father, whom he hated, and and by all accounts was a a menacing father, even though um, he was half of Sonny's size. Um, But Sonny was born without a birth certificate, so nobody really ever knew uh, how old he was. And as I write in the book, that, that you know, being born without the most basic document to to um, mark your arrival left Sonny from birth as a kind of a rootless figure, somebody who not only didn't know how old he was, but really didn't have a sense of his own meaning. And um, as he progressed through boxing, he had a number of... Um, um, you know, unsavory um, mentors. Now, you know that's not surprising. Um, he took to the streets um, when he moved to St. Louis with his, to, to find his mother, who um, had left Forest City to, to get work. He gets to St. Louis. He be, becomes parts of gangs, goes to jail, and as I write in the book, most people lose their careers um, in jail. But Sonny found his. Um, a, a priest marked him as as quite a uh, amazing boxer and. He began going up to Golden Gloves ranks and, and, and then turned pro, and really it became a, a steady march to the championship after that. How big of a deal was Sonny Liston when he fought Muhammad Ali? I know he'd fought some important fights already, but did this solidify his national reputation? Oh, no, no, by, by no means, um, no. I mean, Ali, by the time Ali comes up and, and, and gets the, the, the fight with Sonny in 1964, it's Ali who's, who's seen as the upstart. It's Ali who's just beginning to come into the national consciousness. Sonny has been in, in, in America's consciousness for, for the better part of a decade. By the way, has also testified in front of Congress um, in, in hearings about um, organized crime and boxing, uh, has... has um, you know, had countless magazine stories written about him, and has tried in his own way to rehabilitate his image in a series of remarkable interviews with the Chicago American during the Patterson fights, um, and there were two. Um, you know, Sonny, Sonny tried to be the you know the 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 good 
and I, I'm, I hope you understand I'm using this term advisedly, but he tried to be the good Negro. Uh, he tried to be somebody, you know, somebody that the educated African-American class who loved Patterson could respect and just never worked. But no, by the, you know, Sonny in the early, in the 50s and, and, and 60s were, was already an, an internationally known figure, which is why, you know, he had taken Ali lightly when Ali gets the, the, the chance to fight him in 1964. Ali was seen as the one who was the clown, the kid, um, the loose-limbed um, upstart from Louisville, and um, nobody expected Ali to win, which is what made that fight and then the subsequent ones so shocking. Could you talk more about those fights? They were quite a, a spectacle around the world, both the first fight and the rematch. Yeah, what happens in the in the first fight, and I write about this in the book because the book um, is very much a, a police procedural about what happens um, to Sonny in, in, after his fighting career is almost over. But one of the central um, parts of the book is uh, when Sonny lose, when Sonny loses to Muhammad Ali in 1964. It's a loss nobody expects. Um, Sonny had hurt his shoulder, and so by the time, and he had expected to, to win early, everybody expected him to win early, um, and uh, this was a fight in Miami, and, and Sonny had mob handlers there who, you know, were, were there's a lot of money flowing around on that fight, and um, look, it didn't go as fast as Sonny thought, it, Ali's reach shocked him, Ali's speed shocked him, Ali's height and, and strength shocked him, so by the time they got to the seventh round, um, Sonny sat on his chair and did a no mas. He just he just ended the fight through the white flag again, which was shocking um, and even more shocking when everybody understood that there was a secret under the table agreement that gave Sonny the rights to promote Ali's next fight. Essentially, Sonny had a reason to throw in the towel so they could have a second fight, and Sonny trained like the Dickens for that second fight. Um, it was supposed to be held in Boston, and he probably would have won it had Ali not had a hernia on the eve of the fight, and, and the fight had to be rescheduled. At that point, Sonny was probably in his early 40s, and it's just not that easy for a man in his early 40s to um, to come back. So by the time the fight gets rescheduled in Lewiston, Maine, Sonny's heart just doesn't in it. And um, what's known as the phantom punch fight, um, it gets its name because Sonny goes down in the first round um, with what looks like a phantom punch from Ali, just a glancing blow, and, and immediately cries a fix rain down on the ring. And uh, when you meet Sonny in my book, it's, it's five years after that. He's moved to Las Vegas, and you see him at the very end of his, uh, his career. Yeah, for sure. Talk briefly, if you would, about what Las Vegas was like at the end of the 60s in the beginning of the 70s. I mean, the way I, the, one of the ways I reported this book, and, and the good news is that libraries are still, still great places, uh, and I had the, um, the Nevada library system send me when I was living in New York um, the Review Journal and Sun newspapers for the years 1969 and 70, um, keeping in mind that Sonny died in, in, at the end of 1970. And uh, I was able to get a real granular sense of, of what that town was like. I and mean, the mob was, was, you know, still had its hold over the strip, but that hold was being loosened by the corporate interests. Uh, you, you were beginning to see Vegas becoming a corporate town. Howard Hughes was running the show from his penthouse in the Desert Inn. Elvis was playing the International twice, the, twice a night. Frank Sinatra, his, his, his golden voice, a thing to, to worship up close, was, was still playing. And, um, you know, it was, it was still a luminous city, but what I was, what I was quite 
surprised by was it was also a deeply, deeply segregated city and a violent one as well. Um, the the um, west side of Las Vegas had once been a place where blacks were not allowed in the in the white strip. Um, hotels created their own jazz clubs, and it became so popular that the white entertainers would go to the West Side um, after their shows were over. Um, so the West Side had its had its own rich cultural history. But by 1970, um, it had been redlined into civic neglect. Um, this was a time when you had the Black Panthers, when you had the 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 most violent um, you know era of the civil rights struggle, um, and you know there was there was the town was burning. And so you had this weird dichotomy where, on the one hand, you know, you had white Las Vegas, and Sonny Liston lived in a white neighborhood where um, his, his, his the, you know, the streets were manicured and his neighbors were actors and, and, and um, casino executives. Um, but he would get in his, his pink Cadillac convertible, drive down the strip, and spend every night in the shiftless soul of the ghetto. And part of what I write about in the book is that there was really no person in Las Vegas in that period who bridged those two remarkable worlds like Sonny Liston. Yeah, that's a great segue to my next question. You've already mentioned his connections to the mafia and the underworld, but Liston also hobnobbed with celebrities. Who were some of the celebrities he rubbed shoulders with? Well, I mean, you know, one after Sonny had lost that that um, phantom punch fight to to Muhammad Ali, he was he was banned for several years, and it took Sammy Davis Jr. Um, to get him to get him back into boxing. So you would have these parties where you'd see sort of Sammy Davis Jr. and and strippers and Nipsey Russell and and comedians that Sonny hung around with, and and you know his mob friends. I mean, there was a real locus at these parties, strippers where you know what when his wife went away he rocked and he rolled one of his one of his and we get, I spent a lot of time on this in the book. One of his friends was a, a famous jazz trumpeter named um, Robert Chudnik. He was also named Red Rodney because he was uh, one of the original members of, of Charlie Parker's trio. And um, like a lot of people in Las Vegas, this, this famous jazz trumpeter led a double life as a uh, the head of a criminal gang. And so, you know, jazz mu- musician at night, criminal gang leader by day, and Sonny did collections for him, also did heroin with him. I know this because of the recollections of his son, who I speak to for the for the book. So um, by the time we meet Sonny in, in 1969, at the very tail end of his career, he's running with some pretty tough people, and um, he's, you know, he's making some pretty poor decisions. But he's still in pretty good physical shape even up to his last fight against Chuck Wepner, right? Yeah, and that's remarkable. I mean, Chuck Wepner, who was, you know, at least 15 years his junior, um, trained hard for that fight. But as he, as he recalled to me, the moment that um, Sonny took off his robes in the Jersey Armory, Sonny's face looked like it was creased, and, and um, he was well beyond retirement age. But, his, but the second uh, Wepner saw Sonny's body, he rethought all the training he had done. I mean, Sonny's body was still a, a force of nature, a mushroom clad, and it looked like it was built for only one thing. It was lacquered, it was beautiful, and um, it, it was like it was attached to just a different head. Uh, and um, Sonny won that fight, but he, but you know, it was a bloody one, and it took a lot out of him. And and he only made thirteen thousand dollars for it. So at the very end of his career, when we meet him, you know, 
both doing collections for the mob and, and other things that that caused law enforcement to keep a very eagle eye on him. And he was he was fighting for the chump change he had fought for earlier in his career. There was no retirement plans for Sonny Liston. Can you talk about what a typical day might have been like for Sonny Liston just prior to his death? Well, um, I can tell you that uh, on, a, on a typical day, he was uh, dealing cocaine out of the International Hotel. Um, he'd, uh, you know, maybe he'd wake up, go for a run on the golf course where he lived. Um, then he'd go to a, a liquor store that uh, he he liked in the Golden West Shopping Center in the, in the um, you know, ghetto part of town. He'd start drinking. He'd, uh, he'd pop in maybe to a friend of his who ran the Sahara Health Club and maybe he'd, you know, do a, get, do a sauna with his friend Joe Lewis, um, maybe then work his way to the International where he'd you know, take up a position in the Kino room and when he had cocaine, he'd sell it there. Um, I, I know this because a, one of the things that was going on in his life, besides him doing heroin and dating a junkie cocktail mistress, um, uh, he was the subject of a federal drug sting, and nobody knows this. You'll, you'll learn about it in my book. Um, but the cops had had through through a a series of events that you'll read about um the cops learned that Sonny was dealing and it sent an undercover agent um John Sutton to Vegas to try to sting Sonny and this agent who I spoke with for the book tells me about sitting in Sonny's house and trying to arrange a drug deal and he he was convinced that if Sonny hadn't died, he was going to sting Sonny and make him wear a wire on his mob friends. Um, and that's the kind of thing that could get you killed in Las Vegas. So um, one of the uh, one of the things I, I wonder about in the book is had anybody did anybody um, suspect that Sonny was um, in trouble with the feds? Another thing you can read about in the book is that Sonny was getting favors done for him by the Las Vegas Police Department. Some some small favors, like he'd drive drunk and they'd let him go, but some larger favors, too, like um, when he was connected to some drug dealers and the drug dealers were arrested, Sonny was the only one let go. Um, they, I argue in the book, and, and I'm not the only one, that Sonny may very well have also been cooperating with the Las Vegas Police Department. Another thing that could have gotten him killed... You've talked about some of Sonny's more high-profile friends, but who were some of Sonny's friends in low places that he was socializing with regularly? Well, um, you, you know, besides the uh, drug gang people and his, you know, junkie mistress and um, some boxing friends, I mean, a central character in the book is, is a casino executive named Ash Resnick, who was effectively Sonny's manager during those first two Ali fights. Um, now, Resnick had never really done much to help Sonny, although he claimed that he loved Sonny like a, a son. But there was a theory that I make a lot of in the book that um, the reason that Sonny took a dive in the second Ali fight was because he had been a promised a cut of Ali's future earnings, essentially an opportunity payment, that if he just took a dive and let Ali take the, you know, keep the championship, that um, he, he would just cash in on Ali's future earnings. At the time, it was unclear that Ali was, you know, nobody knew Ali was going to spend most of the 60s uh, in a similar um, um you know, banishment because of his draft troubles. But by 1971, Ali's about to fight, fight Joe Frazier for the uh, what was called the fight of the century in Madison Square Garden. And Sonny was doing a lot of running his mouth about how he was supposed to get a piece of that fight. 
Um, I, I spoke with people who, who heard Sonny saying that he was going to get a piece of Ali's purse, $5 million purse for that fight. So um, among the other things that Sonny was doing was running his mouth about some things that some very heavy hitters didn't need him running his mouth about. And you can just sort of imagine, here's Sonny, he's, he's driving his pink Cadillac around town with a band, and the feds are, are you know, circling around him. He's got some friends in the Las Vegas Police Department, but he's also got people on the street who are angry at him for what they think is him snitching on them about a fight that he claims that he's owed money for. And he's doing heroin, and he's, he's cheating on his wife. He just doesn't. He just doesn't seem to have any controls on him. Do you think there was any mafia involvement in the Frazier fight? No, I mean I don't. I don't do that reporting in the book. But but the idea that the Nation of Islam was was around um, uh, Ali at that time, and um, you know they certainly didn't want to have anything to do with Sonny's loud mouth. Um, you know, Ash Resnick, um, who Sonny was seen as, as uh, who was, you know, widely believed, according to the FBI, to be connected to the East Coast mob. Um, he was seen arguing with Sonny over money, and Sonny was making threats. And the real reveal in the book is what happens not not uh, in 1971 when Sonny dies, but a dozen years later when somebody walks into the Las Vegas Police Department to say he knows who killed Sonny Liston, that Sonny was murdered. Uh, and that was a Las Vegas Police Department snitch who um, is a, is a ma- becomes a major character in the book. And, and he says that the person who killed Sonny was a rogue cop who took a contract um, to do it. And one of the people he alleges um, offered the contract was Ash Resnick. So it becomes a very muddled story. But by the time you get to it, there's a huge surprise element to this. And, and you know, what you don't see coming is that the person that the snitch accuses um, is still living in Las Vegas. And when I send him an email, he invites me to his home. And the first thing he does when he opens the door is he, is he says, I guess you're here to ask me if I killed Sonny Liston. Yeah, I, I want to ask you about that in a little bit. An absolutely phenomenal twist at the end of your book, for sure. You couldn't have dreamt up anything more interesting than that, right? Uh, you know, I, when, you, when you're in a moment like that, all you can do is let the moment take you. And, and I did, and, and it took me through for four hours of an interview that was one of the most remarkable interviews I've ever done. Um, and, and you have this, this ex-hero cop who turned bad who's um, offering his own theories, but all, it leaves no doubt that he believes Sonny Liston was murdered as well. Um, and if, if we need to go back and establish one thing, it's that you know when Sonny was found dead, uh, the coroner called it natural causes, the cops um, thought it was a heroin overdose, but he never got a homicide investigation. There was never, there was never anybody who, who officially labeled the cause of his death murder. So my book is basically giving Sonny the, the homicide investigation he never had. So let's go back to January 5th, 1971. Can you talk about how Sonny Liston's body was discovered and what condition it was in? Sure. I mean, Sonny is, um, at this point, Sonny's wife, Geraldine, has gone to St. Louis to visit her family. She leaves in, um, in before Christmas. Um, and there comes a point where she tries to reach Sonny, and she can't. Um, and, and that's strange because, um, you know, there's uh, quite, a, you know, quite a long period passes without her being able to get a hold of her husband. 
Um, Sonny dies at some point after Christmas. It's, it's not entirely clear when the toxicology and other tests suggest it was somewhere before New Year's. He's found um, when Geraldine comes home on January 5th. Um, she, she opens the door and she smells something strange. She claims it's, she thinks it's a, something that Sonny might have left on the, on the stove that's burning. Um, she follows the smell up to the bedroom. It's the smell of rotting flesh, and there's Sonny in a T-shirt, and uh, his shorts slumped backwards over his bed, his body in, in, in a terrible state of decomposition. What happens next is strange. Because Geraldine um, then races to the friend of a, a home of a friend, where they try to call a doctor. It, it takes them some time, and it's not until um, about eleven o'clock that they finally p.m. that they return to the home, and and uh, or even I'm sorry, slightly earlier than that. But they're there. They're in the home for something like two hours before they call the police. And what goes on in that two hours is, is open to all sorts of speculation. Um, when the police are finally called, and this is um, about midnight, um, they arrive and the detectives find a small bindle of heroin um, on, in plain view in the kitchen something that seemed very strange to me. If Geraldine had spent two hours cleaning the house, um, why would she leave a bindle of heroin out? Um, I argue in the book, and I think it's the, the most plausible scenario, that um, she didn't miss that bindle of heroin, that the cops planted it because they knew Sonny was dealing drugs, uh, and they wanted to get a search warrant to find those drugs. They did get the search warrant. They didn't find the drugs. I think Geraldine had successfully cleaned those out. Um, but that 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 um, series of events had led to a forty-year conspiracy cottage industry in which most people thought Sonny had died of a heroin overdose or had been given a hot shot, a, a fatal dose of heroin. Um, I argue in the book I don't believe that that was what happened. I believe that his body was so decomposed that it was impossible to tell exactly how he was killed, but that he was killed by some other means. But the coroner records accidental heroin overdose as the cause of Sonny's death, doesn't he? Um, That's not quite what the coroner finds. What the coroner finds is that Sonny dies of natural causes. Um, His his explanation is fluid on the lungs, which, um, you know, he's, which, which, he attributes to some some strange malady called syndrome X, um, some some strange um, arterial degeneration where where the the blood just isn't flowing to Sonny's heart. So the coroner calls it natural causes. Um, he finds heroin metabolites in the blood, but doesn't quite call it heroin. There's all sorts of other reasons that those, they could have been there, including um, a byproduct of decomposition. The cops are the ones that float this heroin overdose theory, um, but never quite, you know, back it up all the way. And so there's always been just this murkiness about what exactly um, Sonny died from. And, uh, the, you know, the reality is nobody wanted, nobody wanted to go any further. You know, here was a guy that everybody wanted out of the way. This was Vegas. They just wanted to, you know, c- cover this up as quickly as they could, and then they did. Um, you know, Sonny got the, uh, a great Vegas send-off. I mean, you know, they, they, the funeral procession ran red lights all the way to the cemetery, um, but nobody wanted to ask questions after that. 
We will be right back. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So you say the next big clue in the mystery of Liston's death comes 12 years later. Can I ask about what happens in those 12 years? Is, is the whole thing just swept under the rug? Does anyone question his death at all? 
How does his wife, Geraldine, react to what had happened? Well, that's a great question. Geraldine um, keeps her silence. She, she winds up becoming a hostess in, in um, the, uh, I think it was the Sands Casino, and she really doesn't speak anymore. Um, she, she, you know, she charges people for interviews, um, and when she does speak, she always insists she has no idea how Sonny died at his funeral. She famously throws herself on the casket, his closed casket, and yells to the assembled um, throng, um, Sonny, can't, you know, tell me who did this to you. Um, you know, but, but she doesn't, she never, she never voices an opinion, and she goes away quietly. Um, I think I think that if she did know who did did it, um, all agree, just decided the best thing was to keep their mouths shut. As far as Sonny's friends, um, you know, this was still a dangerous time in Las Vegas. Um, nobody really saw any vested any any uh, upside in asking the tough questions. Everybody had their little theories, um, but nobody saw uh, much of an upside in, in, in pressing those theories. Could you tell us about Larry Gandy? who he was, and how you first came across his name. Well, Larry Gandy was a very interesting figure because he was a hero cop in um, the late 60s and early in early 70s in Vegas. Um, he was among the most violent, um, but he was a hero cop because he took more drugs off the street than anybody. And the way he did it was through a... a, a con that nobody could believe it made him a legend um he would shoot he would pretend that he, he would do he would go into in, into heroin buys with little sugar um maple syrup canisters uh, in you know hidden in his on his body he would buy heroin but then switch it out when nobody was looking with this maple syrup and then inject the maple syrup into his veins and pretend to be a junkie. He'd be an undercover cop shooting maple syrup into his veins, uh, pretending to be a junkie. And he arrested more more dealers than anybody in Vegas because everybody just assumed that he was like them. Um, he'd, he'd go, he'd, he'd give you know, the who's, where's, what's and where's to the uniform cops, and they would do the raids. And, um, you know, Gandhi spent a lot of time fearing for his life, um, but he was also fearless. And um, at some point, he, he gets into a few violent disputes with um, his managers who see him, begin to see him as uncontrollable. Um, he, he leaves the force and um, develops a cocaine habit. And um, in um, you know through in in the early '80s, you know begins ripping off drug dealers um, through the '70s and into the '80s. Begins ripping off the drug dealers he used to arrest. Um, and one of his partners in this is an old snitch that he used to use by the name of Irwin Peters. Um, by 1982, however, um, this this hero cop who's broken bad is uh, is strung out on on cocaine and um, in a really bad place with his snitch. Um, they're having a, a huge fight, and the snitch walks into the Las Vegas Police Department trying to get out of this. Just He wants, he wants nothing else to do with Gandhi, and he, and he essentially says, I can give you this guy. I can set him up for you. And during the debriefing, he says, and I can also tell you what else he did. And it's during that debriefing while they're, they're arranging to set up this cop who's broken bad where he says, oh, and by the way, Gandhi told me he killed Sonny Liston. 
So what happens at that point? It's still a number of years away from when you actually meet Larry Gandy face-to-face. Could you continue with that story? What comes of Erwin Peters' accusation? Well, um, the the Sonny Liston part of, of Erwin Peters' story sort of gets lost in the shuffle. Um, you know, the cops don't have enough proof. Meanwhile, they have a lot of proof that this crooked cop Gandhi is ripping off um, drug dealers and ripping off houses. They set him up and catch him red-handed. And that's enough for the cops to, to, to put this guy Gandhi away. And, and so they focus on what they have, a bird in the hand. Um, they don't focus on the Liston case. Um, meanwhile, the this guy... Peters, the snitch, tries to sell the story to another magazine, but you know that never really goes anywhere. And then something strange happens. The snitch ends up dead. A lot of people in this book end up dead. The snitch ends up dead. He moves to Oregon to get away from, from Gandhi, who he fears wants to kill him, not surprisingly, since he set Gandhi up. And um, one day, after he moves to a, a tiny little town in Oregon, figuring nobody knew where he was, he ends up um, in his car suffocated by carbon monoxide in his garage. And the, the, the medical examiner there uh, attributes this to accidental causes, that somehow this snitch had been in his car without realizing that there was a hole in the exhaust pipe. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's so implausible that even members of his own family thought he was murdered. And so now you have another murder, or another, another death that's circling around this, this ex-cop, um, Gandhi. And so Gandhi then basically disappears. He, um, he, he serves a, a, a very, very short sentence in jail for his, for his robberies. There's a judge who looks kindly on him. And he gets out, he gets out of jail and uh, does, having done his time, it, you know, turns his life around, gets a real estate license, becomes a, you know, an, a house appraiser in Las Vegas, remarries, and um, basically is, is living a, a forgotten life until I knock on his door. So let me just step back from the story for a moment and ask you this question. Where did you get the idea for writing a book about the mystery of Sonny Liston's demise? Had there been rumors circulating since his death? Did you come across an article? How did this come to be your subject? Um, I was writing a novel, um, and it's, it was a, uh, a based on based on a historical character um but a very historical character i was going back to the uh, early 1800s but it was based on a historical character whose death i'd always found suspicious um obviously it was a heck you know it was it was almost impossible to report out so i was doing it as a novel but but the idea of of solving a cold case really began to gnaw at me and and um Instead of doing it as fiction, I thought, wow, is there a cold case that I can really try to solve? And it wasn't long before I, I sort of met up with the list and rumors that had been going on for 40 years. And I just sort of went from a, a historical novel into a real cold case that I thought I could try to um, solve. And I, and I think I've done more than anybody else has to do that. So how did you eventually find Larry Gandy? And could you talk more in detail about what your interview with him was like? Sure. Um, 
Um, well, I mean, you'll you'll see that um, I demonstrate all my investigative reporting skills here. Um, I found him on Facebook. <laughs> I just went on Facebook for Larry Gandy, and there he was, hiding in plain sight. Um, and, and he didn't look like a, a particularly friendly guy, although, you know, he was smiling in some of the photos I saw, but it didn't look like the kind of smile you really wanted to see up close. Um, he had close-cropped hair. He had... Uh, I think I write in the book biceps that looked like they belonged in a Toby Keith video. Um, he was um, in a motorcycle club, and he was looking like a tough dude. Um, but I um, had gotten a uh, something sent to me, and I, I can't tell you how or why, but um, I'd gotten basically a transcript of what Erwin Peters had told, um, had, had said about Gandhi, and it was 170 pages, and it was, it was. Just a wild ride of contradictions and and um, you know, allegations, but at the end of the day, just an incredibly vivid look at what it was like to be a skell in Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas underworld in 1970. And his recollections from the vantage point of 1982 were still very, very vivid. So here I am in 2015 reading those recollections, and um, Gandhi was so prominent in them that I reached out to him and. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, these things are always crapshoots. Um, I can't tell you what this book would have looked like if Larry Gandy had told me to go to hell. But um, within a couple of hours of me writing him, uh, he wrote me back and he, and he said, and I, I quote it in the book, but to paraphrase that he had been carrying this heavy rock for the last um, 30 years, he knew he was, well, as I write in the book, suspect number one, and he finally wanted to get all of this off of his chest. And um, that set up um, my my last flight to Las Vegas, where um, I show up at his uh, his his perfectly lovely housing development, um, and we spend four hours just in in riveting conversation, where he talks about um, being a hero cop. He talks about um, a, a, an era of policing passing him by. He talks about the wrong decisions he made and the crimes he committed. He talks about Erwin Peters. He talks about Sonny Liston. But he denies being the murderer. Um, I won't give you everything away because I do want to leave some things for the readers of the book, but his theory about who killed Sonny is, is as riveting as anything else in the book. Um, and by the time I left, and I, and I think I write this, because I wrote it in my notes, that um, I had just simply lost track of how many bodies had collected around Larry Gandy. What did he say about Peters, the guy who snitched on him? the guy who died in Oregon. Did, did he make any confessions about an involvement in that murder or what you think was a murder? Well, I mean, he had, he had, he had, um, he claimed that Erwin Peters had exaggerated the extent of their criminal confederation. Um, but he did admit that, you know, he had used Peters both as a snitch and as somebody to help him commit crimes. Um, you know, he, he essentially, um, described them as drug confederates who uh, had a, uh, you know, what, what always happens with drug relationships. It goes, it gets messy and it ends badly.
And, um, you know, he talked about that. He talked about the Las Vegas of 1970 with such a vivid memory that it gave me chills. I mean, you know, just going down the strip where everybody knew everybody else and, you know, you waved. Kids grew up in Las Vegas not knowing that everybody didn't grow up with Frank Sinatra winking at them from the Fifth Fairway. I mean, it was just, it was just a different time. And he was my portal onto that different time. And, and while, uh, you know, I, I, there must have been, I don't know, a hundred interviews I did for this book maybe more um gandhi's memories of that las vegas are are really in almost every page so you said that gandhi had been the number one suspect for those who suspected that liston was murdered but not in the eyes of the police the case is closed isn't it has there been any discussion since the release of your book about opening this case back up yeah i've um i have not uh, frankly, um, have uh, the, you know the, the Las Vegas um, Police Department and or District Attorney's Office um, y- y- do not seem interested in in reopening the case. I, I argue in the book that I would start, and um, I do hold out some hope that that maybe this will happen, um, reinvestigating the death of Erwin Peters. Because whether or not it leads to the murder of Sonny Liston, I do think it'll lead to some other crimes. Um, but but that's what's so dangerous about all of this. I mean, you know, Sonny alone was a had arrows pointing in so many different directions. There's just a lot of secrets here that went away with him, um, and a lot of secrets that people would just assume not to, not come out now. Could you talk about who the primary suspects were or are in Sonny Liston's murder? and some of the general theories on what happened to him. Sure. I mean, one, you know, one suspect that has long been rumored, and I, and I shed some light on this, some new light, is Ash Resnick, the casino executive who was Sonny's manager. Um, they were seen, for the two Ali fights, uh, they were seen arguing shortly before Sonny's death over, mur- over, over money. Um, Erwin Peters, for one, alleged that Ash Resnick took took the contract out on Sonny's life. Um, I, I, at the end of the day, I, I don't. I, I argue and uh, say that the, my reporting um, you led me to have doubts about that. But it's entirely possible that if Ash Resnick ever protected Sonny and you know used his influence to protect Sonny, that he was taking that protection away. Um, there um, was the uh, criminal gang leader, um, Red, Ro- Red Rodney, um, a.k.a. Robert Chudnick, the, whose double life is a jazz musician and a, a gang leader and a heroin dealer, um, you know, got caught up in Sonny. He was a very, very shrewd uh, businessman, and he understood that the last thing that he needed was somebody with a loud mouth and, a, and who was strung out on, on junk running around making noises, and that's what Sonny was doing. And um, Robert Chudnick, according to his own son, um, would have seen great value in Sonny going bye-bye. Um, you know, I also talk about the idea that as a, being actively under federal investigation for drug dealing and very likely, uh, you know, being faced with the, the prospect of having to wear a, a wire on somebody, um, you know, Sonny, Sonny was, was, was in a very, very dangerous spot with the feds. And, um, look, he was in a dangerous spot with the Las Vegas Police Department because, and this is a whole sub, 
part of the book, but, you know, his protector had uh, had just signed his own political death warrant, and so Sonny wasn't getting the protection he was used to out of the Las Vegas Police Department. So there was a lot of stuff that was happening very, very quickly, and I, and I go through each of these theories in the book to show why, um, if, if there's not a single theory that I can solve, at least why the preponderance of the evidence suggests that Sonny was murdered and did not die, as the coroner said, of natural causes. What are your own personal thoughts about what happened to Sonny Liston? Uh, you know, the reason that I'm, I'm so interested in the death of Erwin Peters is that uh, he was, while, while much of what he said was contradictory and while it was clear that he had a vendetta against Larry Gandy, so much of what he said was so so weirdly specific in some areas that I think that Peters had Erwin Peters, a man that nobody really knows about and hasn't heard about until my book. I, I think Erwin Peters had something to do with this, and um, the the fact that there are so few people willing to talk about him even now suggests to me that there's a strange um, cult of conspiracy around him that that. I think would be interesting for somebody in law enforcement to at least look at. But, you know, it, it's hard to ask somebody to open a, a 43-year-old cold case. So the coroner said that Sonny died from natural causes. What about the body? Is, is there any physical evidence from the body itself that points to Liston being murdered? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm, you know, I, I wish I could be stronger on this point. Um, my argument is that there was, his body was in such a state of decomposition that um, it would not, blunt trauma would not have been, um, would not have been that evident. Um, you know, Sonny could very well have been, um, you know, given a, high, a higher grade of, of heroin um, than he was expecting. It could very well have been a hot shot, but I, I think more likely um, there was some sort of blunt trauma. I mean, Sonny was a big man. He was a strong man. But look, I mean, when you're, when you're zoned out on, on, on heroin, you're not, you know, you're not fighting back. So, um, you know, I, I, because of the state of his body, it's hard, to, it's hard to forensically go back. But if you sort of, if you just sort of go, um, if you see all the tonnage of what was going on around him, it's, I think that, I think the evidence is, it's just a more likely scenario that it was murder than, than not. So where should we direct people that want to know more about you, your book, your work? Where should they go? Well, I'm, I'm very excited about this, Eric, because the, um, the book is available at bookstores everywhere. Amazon, you know, you can go to, if you want to go to shawnasale.com, you can get it there. But it's really wherever books are sold. Um, what, I'm, what I'm doing is, and you can see this if, when you go to my website, um, I prepared a, a book club um, reading guide for the book with questions and things to debate and things for people to talk about. Um, and if book clubs are interested, I'd, I'd be happy to Skype in and, and you know, chat with the group about this a, a little bit and, and, you know, keep the conversation going. Uh, I, I just, I enjoy um, I enjoy the subject. I think um, it's it's interesting. I think this is the best book I've ever written, and um, I'm just really thrilled with the reactions that I'm getting. So um, the book is everywhere, and I'm here uh, ready to chat about it on Skype. That's excellent. I think that this is a first on my show, an author offering to make themselves available for group discussion. And just to make sure people can get a hold of you who want to take you up on this, 
Your contact information is available on your website, I assume. Yes, it absolutely is. Well, well, thank you so much for spending some time with me here today. Hey, this is no look, man. This is this is my uh, this is my passion, and I'm happy to do it. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.